Welcome to Pastor's Class, a Bible study program brought to you by Tim Say Ministries and Crossover Church. We pray this podcast will help enrich and strengthen your walk with Jesus Christ, and that it will lead you to read and study the scriptures more often. For more information about Tim Say Ministries and Crossover Church, please visit www.crossoverchurch.tv or give us a call at 301-927-5620. Tonight, if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of James, of course we're in the book of James, and chapter 2. And James is taking us now to deal with the issue of faith. I mean, there's faith woven through what we've looked at so far, but he directly deals with the issue of faith. And it's in this that he begins to do some things. He first puts faith to the test. Secondly, he puts faith into motion. And thirdly, he puts faith into perspective. We're going to come back and look at these. Look at verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren, If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Wow, we got to stop there. Because James is dealing with a crucial issue about the issue of faith and the reality of our salvation. And everybody wants to know that they have the assurity of salvation. I mean, you want to know that you're saved and you're really saved. So he talks here about the issue of faith and the impact upon our salvation, the validity of our salvation. And it's interesting, as he does this, it's important that we lay a foundation that what we got to ask, what is James talking about when he says faith? Well, the word that he uses for faith is the Greek word pistis. That word means to rely upon, to trust in, to give charge over. And so it's, it's a person who comes and he, he gives his life, he trusts God, he relies upon God, he comes under the authority of God. In other words, it implies an internal change that produces an external change. And so James says, what, if, what use of it is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Notice that James didn't say the person has faith, but the person says he has faith and thus has no works. Well, as James walks us through this, and the question, the key question, hold on to this, can that faith save him? In verse 15, he begins to give us an example. He says, if a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? So James says, what if a brother? Now, a brother, that means somebody who's in the kingdom, our brother in in Christ, who we're joined to in the spirit, and yet he is experiencing need. It doesn't say that he is naked but maybe he doesn't have enough clothes to be able to deal with the elements and and the climate changes. Maybe he's not sufficiently covered. It doesn't say he's starving, but maybe he doesn't have enough food being able to have strength to be able to face the day and be productive. And if that person comes to you, James says, what is going to be your response? What does faith look like? The person who says, I have faith, but no, no works, how does he respond in that situation? And so James paints this picture, and he says the person responds 
by saying, be warm, be filled. In other words, go in peace. Now, this idea of go in peace is a common Hebrewic farewell. It's in essence to say, shalom. Be warm, be filled, shalom. In other words, understand that I'm not going to help you, but God's peace be on you. Now, when you look at this, James is helping us see something. Here's a person, and it almost sounds like a, talk about a, a faith response. It's as if you're saying, you may feel like you're cold, but by faith, just claim you're warm. <laughs> you, your stomach may be empty, but come on, be a faith person. Claim that it's full. Let, let the weak say I'm strong. Let the hungry say I'm full. Let the cold say I'm warm. And how many know that kind of faith? Now, I know we, we talk about faith professions and faith confessions and all those things. But what if a person has a legitimate need and you turn to them and say, just rise up in faith? When it's within your ability to change their circumstance. And James is saying, here's that person who says, be warm, be filled, shalom to you. It's all right, don't worry, just be happy, go ahead. And James says, now when that happens, he says, when it comes to the issue of faith, what use is that? It's useless. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are familiar with this section of scripture as Paul really defines what real love is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. He says, If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, notice that, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So here we would see this man violates that very call to manifest love in his profession of faith. And now he says here, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Okay, okay, so James is saying, wait a minute. If you just have faith, and there is no corresponding action, no tangible evidence, it's useless. In other words, it's dead. James is helping us to see something. Faith must have some evidence to it. Now, in Matthew's gospel, John the Baptist, who was quite confrontational, as James is confrontational, but John the Baptist says something in Matthew chapter 3. Would you turn there? Matthew's gospel. Tell somebody, it's all right to use your Bibles. <laughs> in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, it says in verse 1, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn around, the kingdom is here. And as he was doing so, we would see, it says in verse 5, then Jerusalem was going out to him, 
in all Judea, in all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. That's powerful. So as they were confessing their sins, they were being baptized. One man was going down, another man was coming up. And yet, he says in verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth, therefore bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. So John looks and in the midst of this time, this call to repentance, the kingdom is here, baptizing people. They're confessing their sins. They're trying to establish rightness with God. And in this moment, here comes the Pharisees and the Sadducees with their own hidden secret religious agenda that doesn't flow with what God has moved. They, they're more committed to the old wineskins as the Bible talks about. And so John says, who warns you to come? You brood of vipers, you, you snakes in the grass. Here you are coming, and, and you're coming to be baptized? Understand something. Now, if you're really going to be baptized in the light of what it really means, you, but you need to be willing to confess your sins, acknowledge that you are wrong. And then you need to bear fruit in your life. There should be corresponding gestures that affirm the fact that you really believe. And then he says this in verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So he says, understand the axe is laid, judgment is coming, and there are two trees. There's a tree that bears fruit, it will remain. But the tree that doesn't bear fruit will be cut down. And he's saying to them, understand, if you're not going to bear fruit for the kingdom of God, you are about to be cut down. So now James takes us and says, this is what faith looks like. If you have real, genuine faith, there's going to be fruit manifested in your life. There will be evidence of the fact that you belong to God. Now, here again, we're looking at the issue. The fundamental question was, can that faith save you? There's going to be some expression, some verification to the fact that you've come into the kingdom. If you've come into the kingdom and there is no change, if there is no turn, if there is no adjustment, is there no internal adjustment and no external witness, then it points to the fact that you never really responded to God. Now, why is this so important? Because, see, I think as Christians, we need to make sure in our witness and in our interaction with people and nurturing people in their walk that they really grasp faith and what faith implies and what faith means. I think sometimes we can push or move too fast and try to solidify somebody's uh, uh, salvation experience when they really haven't come into the kingdom yet. By the way, a lot of people who backslid haven't really slid forward. And so... When we see scriptures about being unequally yoked, then all many times if you really want a girlfriend or a boyfriend and they say, I believe in God, ooh, that's it. And we, we say, well, we got past the unequal yoke part. Wait a minute. Just because you say you have faith 
in no works. Can that faith save you? That's what James is saying. Don't try to make somebody a Christian so it can work for you. <laughs> make sure that there is evidence of their salvation. Make sure they're in the kingdom. And so he puts faith to the test. And then James begins to put faith into motion. There has to be some corresponding action. He says this, verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. He says, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. So he said, now understand, and, and it's really, we see in this kind of going back and forth, point, counterpoint, point, counterpoint, helping you to see that there are those who may say, I can stand with simply having faith. And James said, wait a minute. There has to be the coupling of faith and works. Faith and works. Faith and works. They've got to be joined together. Now, it's in this that James helps us to see because he says in verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So James says, you believe that God is one. And this is a reference. This points back to what is called the Shema. S-H-E-M-A. It was a phrase that was a part of Orthodox Judaism. It was an understanding foundation point for the Jewish community. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. He's central. He's supreme. There's no other. He's elevated above all else. He's divinely. He's holy. He's separated. He's God Almighty. There's none like him. He says, now, if you believe that, you do well. You've come to a great place to believe that. That's good. But that won't save you. Because, see, demons believe that. Demons know that he is God. They know he is elevated above all else. They know there's none like him. The demons could sing, who is like the Lord? Because they know there's none that can compare to God Almighty. It's interesting, when you look in Mark's gospel, we're told about a man in Mark chapter 5, a man who is defined as a garrison demoniac. And it's when Jesus and the company get to the other side where he is, we discover this man, and it is said that in verse 3, and he had his dwellings among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him, any, bind him anymore, even with chains, because that he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. So he was demon-possessed, and he moved in a realm of supernatural strength. And it says in the context that he would just go in the night, and he would yell and scream, and he would he'd just be this mad man with all these demons in him. And you could imagine he would terrorize anybody who came around. I mean, he's in the tomb, so you got these tales from the crypt. <laughs> and verse 5 said, constantly, day and night, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. 
So you could see this man, wild, crazy, screaming, yelling, and bloody as he gashed himself, a self-destructive spirit, and said, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and he bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. So here, this, this man who was out of control, this man who would yell and scream, this man who would gash himself, this man who could not be restrained, who could break through chains, but when he saw Jesus, he ran up to Jesus and it said he bowed down. Because even though he was demon possessed, the demons knew who Jesus was. And they had to respond in kind that he was God Almighty. See, they know. Even the demons believe. But understand, this is not submission. This is acknowledgement of superior power. Now, you hear the difference. It is not submission to God, but an acknowledgement of how great he is. So they believe that he's one, but it, they didn't change. They didn't turn. There was no corresponding gesture to say, we now give our lives to you. No, they are not submitting. They're not giving their heart to him. They're simply acknowledging you are greater than me. And what do we have to do with each other? We're at two extremes. You're greater, you're God, you're sovereign, and yet we are not on the same side. Why are you coming over here? Don't, don't torment me. They knew he had the power to do to them what they didn't want to have done. So demons believe. It says they shudder, they shake, they're terrified. Isn't that a powerful statement? That demons shake and shudder in the light of who he is. Well, guess whose name we possess? So the Bible says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. That if we draw near to God, resist the devil, he will what? Flee. So we understand there's an authority, reality that we have because demons acknowledge superior power. And so our strength against the forces of evil is to make sure we are cloaked with the very presence and purpose of God. Amen? Don't you try to cast out demons in your name. We've seen what happened when some guys did that. And they end up being chased and their clothes being taken off. And, and because they tried to do it in their power, in their name. Uh, you know, I know Peter, I know Paul, I know Jesus, I don't know you. And so you better not, <laughs> you better make sure that when demons hear your name, it's because your name is covered by his name. Hallelujah. So anytime we're in the face of demonic assault or attack, we still can be secure in God because we have the power of who he is and the greatness of his name. And demons shudder. Hallelujah. They shake before him. And so it says here, it says in verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Wow. Faith without works is useless. Now, here's James. He's saying, here's that man who says, 
I have faith but no works. Or that man who says that he may say I have faith but he has no corresponding actions. James says, okay, now listen up, you foolish fellow. Now, now James, I like this. He's cutting to the point. Listen to me, sir. Understand something. That in your pursuit of this, what you're doing is really useless. Now, we've got we to pause for a moment. Because James is making the case that faith is inseparable from works. Now, I'm going to say it again so you can get this. James is saying that faith is inseparable from the presence of works. Well, wait a minute. Does that put James at odds with other scriptural references in the Bible? Because when we read verses like Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, for by grace you have been saved, through faith, that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Wait a minute. James says that you must have works that flow and, and attest to your faith. Paul says that salvation is a gift, not as a result of works. So wait a minute. Okay. Where do works fit in? Is it by works? Is it not by works? Do we need works? Help us understand. And, and this one of the most beautiful things about Scripture is that, I've said it before, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And it's not that James and Paul are battling against each other. They're not struggling against each other. No, they're, they're giving us two angles of the same truth. I like, I like how, it's, uh, how John Calvin said it. He said... You are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saved you is not alone. You are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves you is not alone. So understand, you're not saved by works. You're saved by faith. But if you have genuine faith, works will follow. See, let's think about it now. In Romans, we talk about this process of coming to Christ. You acknowledge that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life, that whole Roman road to salvation. And we see in chapter 10, it's the statement that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in salvation, or resulting in righteousness, but with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, the key thing here is the depth of your belief. See, you believe with your heart. You come, you, your heart is coming to a place of genuine belief and faith in God. Well, if you really believe that Jesus is Lord, and that is a, something you have established in your heart, then his lordship has authority over your life. If he's Lord, he's going to be Lord of your heart. If he's Lord of your heart, your heart must now change. If your heart changes, your lifestyle is changed. So if, he, if you believe that he is Lord, but you don't act like he's Lord, then you don't believe he's Lord. 
It's, that's, that's just, you know, basic. That it doesn't even have to apply to salvation. It apply to everyday life. If you believe this, but you do that, then you don't believe that. Right? And so if you believe he is Lord, but you don't live like he's Lord, then he's not Lord in your heart. The scripture says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. I mean, set him apart from all else. And so James is saying, and, and, and he's saying now, the reality is if Christ is central in your life and you respond to him in faith and he has that central place, then there will be corresponding actions that affirm it, that you're going to live. See, if you come to Christ and there's no change, let's ask the question, can that faith save you? You're not saved by works, but there should be some evidence. How was it when you came into the kingdom? Was it progressive? I mean, I... I I just know when I came in the kingdom and I got, it got real to me. I mean, I grew up in church and it wasn't real to me. I grew up in church. It was, I mean, we went through the process, the religious whole process. I got baptized. I wouldn't even say when I was baptized. I mean, so when I really received Christ outside of my church, <laughs> I, I was, it, it was real. I wanted to live for God. And that's, that's the fact. When you really get saved, you want to live for God. That's what it means. You want to live for him. And, and that meant it, it changed my whole approach. It didn't mean I was perfect. It mean I made many mistakes. But there was this underlying pursuit. I wanted to live for God. And I think if you come into the kingdom, there's a pursuit for God, and your lifestyle will reveal it. It's not, not perfect, but it's a pursuit to say, God is real in my life. He's Lord. So James is, is affirming that, and then he goes back and he gives us some, some examples. He says now in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of works, faith was perfected. <laughs> wow. And verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So Abraham, and, and Abraham responds to God. Now, he's, James is talking about two distinct occurrences in Abraham's life. One occurs in Genesis chapter 15. The other occurs in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 15, God speaks to Abraham. And he, he takes him outside and says, Abraham, I want you to count the stars. And this is Abraham. I mean, there is the inability there, this, to have these kids. And, 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 but he says, understand, Abraham, you're going to be not just a father of a multitude, but a father of a nation. Uh, I want you to count the stars. Uh, one, two, three, uh, 1,001, uh, 5,001, two, three. They're too too innumerable. I can't count them. He says, so shall your descendants be. Abraham believed God. Even when there wasn't physical evidence, he believed God, and it was reckoned as righteousness. Okay, now, in that, it would be from chapter 15 to chapter 22, 30 years would pass. And in chapter 22, Abraham has a son. And God says, I want you to take your son 
and I want you to present him as a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. And Abraham takes his son to offer him up to God. Wow. Now, Abraham is taking the promise. And he's ready to offer up the promise. It takes faith to offer up the promise you've been waiting for. (laughs) He has to now offer up that promise that he's been waiting years for that he's gone through some real drama over in his own marriage, in his own household, and then he has the promise, and God says, offer it up. And Abraham lived in this awareness that I can offer up the promise if I am right with the one who promised. Has God ever had you offer up something you've been waiting for? Something that you've grown attached to? Something that maybe you depended upon. And God says, for, maybe for a season, I need you to pull away from that. I need you to lay that aside. I need, I need to make sure you've got a right perspective. Sometimes it may manifest in maybe a single person where God says, I want you for a season not to, eat, not to date anybody, not to go out right now. I want to make sure that I am established as that central relationship before you try to incorporate other people. Now, I remember for me it was a simple expression of just when I was studying for ministry and I was in school and along with studying classes and all that I I love books and I love commentaries and I collected them I read them and separate from the things I was studying there I would go back and just study and read these books and and there was a moment where I just felt like God said just put all those books away because you are become so attached to these books that I'd want to make sure it doesn't preempt my voice in your life. And I had to pack up all my books. This is a good stuff. This is not a bad thing, right? It was a good thing, but it, a good thing becomes a bad thing when it obstructs our view of God. I had to take it and put it away. And I think, here, his son is not a bad thing. But he said, now, are you willing to lay it down for me and trust me? And I love what it says in Hebrews. Hopefully we'll get there in a moment. So we see that what Abraham established in chapter 15, he manifested in a very real sense in chapter 22. That faith was in motion. That faith was activated, and he revealed it by his willingness to even lay down his only begotten son. It's here that we see that in verse verse 24, he says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, you've got to take that in context of what we said earlier. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out by another way? Okay, now, Abraham and Rahab are like in the sense that they are people of faith. But in every other area of their life, they're completely different. <laughs> completely different people. <laughs> I mean, Rahab was a pagan. Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was, you know, so she was completely separate from Abraham. And yet, she responded in faith when the opportunity came, and she even risked her own life to protect these spies. There was evidence of her faith that was manifested in what she did. And you would see as we get there that she's in Hebrews chapter 11, which we call the Hall of Fame of Faith. 
and Rahab is in there. Here we see that faith has to be realized, manifested, and becomes tangible in our life. So he says, look, in the same way, he said that was Rahab, now he comes and he seals this with this truth. You got Abraham, you got Rahab. People who have been, have gone before us, have modeled something. That they are not just justified, justified by faith alone, but their works begin to affirm. So we're here again. Let's go back. Let's go back. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's a gift from God. And as a result of works, lest any man should boast. So I can't boast because I, I worked myself into heaven. I, I, I've done nothing in my own ability to make myself pleasing to God by my own works. Matter of fact, the Bible says all our righteousness is but filthy rags before him. We can't do anything in and on our own self. We need the shed blood of Jesus. Right? So the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We need him. But he's affirming here that the affirmation that faith is real to us is the fact that there are actions that begin to line up with the mind and the ways of God. So now, it's interesting and, it, and it's rough because I know what it is to pray with somebody on their deathbed. And, and my heart is only, you know, that they, they really have come to a place of really exercising a genuine response to God. Because that is the worst. I mean, you, you don't want to wait to then. Because you don't know if you're, really, if you're really praying that prayer in full belief that if, if opportunity was granted, you would live for God. Or if you're just simply in the moment and you're frightened and you're responding to what is happening in that moment. But see, it's so important that we begin and, and we are knowledgeable enough to help people that when they come to the kingdom, see, sometimes I think we pray with people and they respond and then we don't see them anymore or, or they, they don't get connected or whatever. It seems like it was just a, in a moment. Just, it's like that reference that Jesus talks about, about the seed being sown on different, on different uh, soils. And I think sometimes people respond like that seed that produces a, a, a plant that pops up real quick and then the sun comes and persecution and hardship comes and it, it, it dies out. Some people don't really get deep into the soil. They, they sound like it in that moment. They may even show sincerity. But at that point, all they have arrived to is what is equal to the Shema. They believe that God is one. He's great. But they haven't come to a place of really digging down into God. It's, you know, it's interesting because, and I won't get into it tonight, but Sunday I want to focus on our issue of drawing near to God. And there are three levels of pursuit. And in those pursuits, they're, they're, they're so important because how we see God and who he is and how we respond to him speaks to the level that God wants to bring us to. And I'm not going to preach that. I'm not going to do that right now. I'm not going to do that. Right I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it. But here James has given us. He's put faith to the test. He's put faith in, in motion. Now in the last verse, he puts faith in perspective. He says this. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, 
So also faith without works is dead. Can it be any clearer than that? New English Bible says this. So faith divorce from deeds is as lifeless as a corpse. Faith divorced from deeds is as lifeless as a corpse. So without works, it, and here's a fundamental question. Let's go back to that question. If a man says he has faith but no works, can that faith save him? Ask somebody, can that faith save him? And the answer is, <laughs> okay, let me start all over again. <laughs> I know you got it down on the, on the south side. We just got a little problem here on the east side. We're still working through. <laughs> okay, let's go back. Let me lay this, because this is so important. This is really important. You are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves you is not alone. Right. So real faith will have works attached to it. All right. All right. So if a man says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Hercules! <laughs> I'm sure you guys got it on the other side. We pray we got that. Amen. So we're not saved by works, but if we're saved, there will be works. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Let's seal this. Hebrews chapter 11. If you're there, say amen. Okay, Hebrews 11, page 1026. Verse 7, by, I mean, we could go through the whole chapter, but I'm just going to pick out some areas. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things yet not yet, things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, of the righteousness which is according to faith. So he believed God, but his corresponding action, he built an ark. He did what God told him to do. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive an inheritance. Look at this. And he went out not knowing where he was going. How many know that takes faith? God calls you out and you don't know where you're going. What God has, what it's going to ultimately look like. Verse 11, by faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life. <laughs> she was considered, she considered him faithful who had promise. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead. Talk about Abraham. Wow. Wow, Sarah probably said to Abraham, you're the most beautiful decaying man I've ever seen. <laughs> as good as dead <laughs> at that as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number. 
and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Wow. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. Verse 19, look at this. He considered that God, look at this. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So he realized, if this is the child of promise, and if this is what God has called me to do, then God will raise him back up. I got to be obedient to God. If God calls you to put something down, understand it, but it's a part of your calling in life, understand you put it down and God will raise it back up. God, you got to walk by faith. You got to walk by faith. You got to walk by faith. So we walk not by sight, but by And faith will have works attached to it. So if you encounter someone with, and it's within your capacity to help them, don't say be warmed by faith. Be filled by faith. Shalom. No, you are a part of the exercise of that faith toward that person. And you really build their faith by exercising your faith. Amen. Amen. James helps us to see faith in motion. Amen. Come on, stand with me. Thank you for listening to Pastor's Class. We hope you enjoyed this program. For more messages and Bible study teachings, please visit www.crossoverchurch.tv or give us a call at 301-927-5620. If you live in the D.C., Maryland, or Virginia area, come visit us at our home location, 5340 Baltimore Avenue, Hyattsville, Maryland, 20781. Pastor's Class is a weekly Bible study that occurs Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. at our home location. We would love for you to join us. May God bless you and guide you as you continue to study to show thyself approved in the grace of Christ Jesus.